Kia ora, and welcome to Ven Presents, a series of conversations exploring the depth and richness of the Christian tradition between the host Sam Bloor and members of the Ven team and wider Ven community. Each short series will expand on some of the themes that have emerged from Ven's work, including our programs, events, books, and monthly digital publication Common Ground. The topics will be wide-ranging, from exploring Christian faith and doctrine to engagement with wider culture, including family, business, the arts, education, music, and sport. The wonderful piece of music you're hearing in the background is Max Richter's recomposition of Vivaldi's masterpiece, Spring. We are hoping Ven Presents will, in some small way, help us all to reimagine how the gospel of Jesus Christ might sound in the communities and callings we find ourselves in today. Now, let's go ahead and listen to the latest episode. Hello and welcome to this third and final episode in the Good of Work podcast series that we've been doing. I'm joined by a couple of my good friends and colleagues, well rejoined by the first one, Olivia Byrne. Nice to have you back. Hi Sam, thanks for having me. And John Dennison, who heads up our work in Wellington and uh, heads up resources. Nice to have you here, John. Mm, Awesome to be here. Thank you. Thanks both. Now, John, it's a question I've already asked Liv. I've asked everyone who's been on. Uh, I had Andrew, Shamie and Julia Bloor for the first one and Nathan and Olivia for the next. Uh, your worst job oh, ever. I knew this question was coming. Okay, so uh, 1998, a, a bad summer for <laughs> a student looking for work and um, there are a couple of, of really bad jobs that summer. But the one, the longest job I landed that summer was... Um, Cleaning the the Griffin's Biscuit Factory uh, yeah. in Bertone. in um, so if you can imagine massive factory conveyor belts, it's all st- stopped producing biscuits, and we're running around with air hoses, uh, flowers flying everywhere, old dairy stuff. That I found myself scraping the tank that makes the jam for Shrewsbury Shrewsbury. Biscuits, you know the ones with the little holes where you put your little you pinky finger your, and that's pick right. the, pick the, the jam, jam out. I was the dude cleaning, cleaning the tank, and oh, so if I you had a Shrewsbury it. in 1999, chances are you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone seems like they've got a food job story. Yeah, uh, for mm. uh, Andrew, it was KFC. Liv, you were um, Subway. Subway. Yeah. Like, can you eat Shrewsburys now, John? Like, is uh, there something about the smell of that probably slightly burnt jam scrapings? Like, can you go back? We, so we were um, given breakfast. And we'd start at six and mm. given breakfast in the middle of the morning shift. And oh, those eggs were so hard to get down because they yeah, just, everything else was smelled oh, like else. the factory. Yeah. Wow. So my heart was not in it. Once again, we've come in on some intro music in episode one. It was Dolly Parton's Nine to Five. Uh, in the last episode, episode two, was Iggy Azalea. We've kind of lifted things slightly here by going to the Porter's Gate uh, Worship Project, their album Work Songs. Oh, we labour unto glory when heaven and earth are one. Oh, we labour unto glory until God's kingdom comes. You must have been humming that, John, as you scraped <laughs> out the, the, jam, the, jam, uh, the jam vat. Um, Liv, tell us a little bit about the playlist that Donald Goodall put together in the last edition of Common Ground, that was a song, I've pinched it, and I've actually, we're going to dot this episode with a few of those songs, we're going to have them intermittently through it, but just explain what he did mm. there. Yeah, Donald, one of our colleagues who directs the Residential Fellowship at Venn Foundation, he um, he's a musician, does a lot of work with um, his own band as well as in the worship space, and he put together this playlist of songs for us to work to. And um, one of the really unique features of this playlist, it's designed to be paid in order rather than on shuffle. So a little side note for everybody listening out there. Um, but it's this progression through some of our postures and feelings towards work. So these musicians that he's found and the songs that he's put together, they kind of capture something of what it means to be image bearers of God, um, creating shalom in our workspaces, pulling the kingdom of God into the here and now. 
Um, but he's also drawn in some of these really strong themes of idolatry and cost of our ambition and greed and our thirst for power. Um, so there's some of these songs actually hit quite dark notes and yeah. kind of touch on some of these themes that we drew out in our second ed- edition of Common Ground. Yeah. Um, but then there's this kind of turn within the playlist that really recognizes that Christ actually sees us in our helplessness and in our despair, and he empowers us to then work unto his glory. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the um, tones that are coming through in Porter's Gate Worship Collective, um, yeah, yeah. the album that they put together. Um, and then there's a couple of other songs dotted throughout. But yeah. It's just a wonderful playlist, and it's mm-hmm. definitely worth listening to mm-hmm. as you work. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. It's about an hour 20, is it long? Mm-hmm. How, how I think long it's an it? hour 25. Yeah, okay. We're going to hit sort of four or five songs uh, on the way through. Just to recap where we've been, episode one, episode two, had uh, Andrew Shamey and Julia Bloor uh, in here. They were introducing us to the, the depth and breadth of our original Genesis mandate. We're created in God's image to be his priestly co-regents in stewarding his creation temple. And then, Liv, you were here last time with Nathan mm. really <laughs> going into those difficult following chapters, right? Genesis yeah. one and two, we come crashing down in Genesis three and really picking up, uh, particularly looking through the story of Babel at mm. just how sin has fractured everything, mm. including our work. And you had uh, just our proneness to idolatry, the way that work becomes enslaving, uh, all of those things. Well, what we're hoping for in this episode is to go for something of a, a redemptive movement coming to the work of Christ and how in and through Christ our, our work is redeemed. Again, we're going to be referring a lot to articles from uh, Common Ground. We've already uh, not gave a nod to the, to the playlist from there. Don't panic if you're listening to this and you haven't Uh, read the articles that we're going to be referring to repeatedly throughout this uh, podcast. Uh, We're going to be explaining things as we go, but we would point you to those to to have a read of uh, sometime afterwards. So Liv, maybe tell us both um, where we can find those Mm. uh, as our sort of comms and marketing manager and and also um, just how these articles were slightly different, the, the, the shape that they took in Common Ground. Yeah, yeah. So if you ever want to access any of our articles or content, it's um, just head over to vim.org.nz forward slash common ground. That's got um, all of our editions there, a whole lot of articles. It's a really rich resource if you want to engage with the uh, theology of work, but also a variety of themes as well. Um, So in this last edition, John wrote our feature article. And he was really rounding out this three-part series on the good of work and offering us a theological lens to answer the question that we'd left hanging with in my article, which is who can redeem us? Who can redeem our work? And what are the ways that this happens? What does this actually look like? And then so as a kind of companion piece for this, Sam, your article was really looking at the impact of Jesus' redemption on our day-to-day working lives. Um, which Sam will speak to shortly, and John, you'll be speaking to your article shortly as well. Um, But it's worth noting here that we weren't um, seeking to create a dualism with this. It wasn't like John wrote the theological framing and then Sam wrote the praxis. Um, Dualisms like that are unhelpful, but also pretty false. So Mm -hmm. the way that we think about work and the way we feel and understand it totally impacts how we are in our work and what it looks like on the ground so um that wasn't actually our intention and it's also not the effect of those two pieces yeah going Mm. for real integration and in fact there is a lot of that between the two pieces eh? absolutely Mm. um yeah john why don't you uh, i'll give a summary of mine in a moment why don't you just give a a summary of yours yeah so a framing question could be uh, given what human beings have made of work Given the ways in which it's become a source of uh, distorted identity and oppression and injustice, idolatry, uh, what has God done? What is God doing mm. to redeem and renew our work? And in particular, what is what is Jesus and Jesus' life, um, the work he did, what does that have to do with my work? Uh, and then how, how does what Jesus done connect with my nine to five? How can I share in the redemption of that? 
Yeah, mine was sort of picking up uh, a bit on on what then the, the implications are. And actually, John, you, you included some of that in your piece as well. So it was by no means, as we've just said, a sort of a, mm. you know, learn this and then do this. Mm. Uh, those things really weave together. But the implications of it, there are actually a number of authors who have, have really looked at the implications of following Christ in the workplace. I think of the title of John Stackhouse's book actually is Making the Best of It, Following Christ in the Real World. Um, Paul Stevens and Albert Ung written a book that I've uh, drawn on before as well, Taking Your Soul to Work, Overcoming the Nine Deadly Sins of the Workplace. They do a, a great thing there where they put those um, actually into conversation with the nine fruit of the Spirit. That's uh, another mm. great thing of actually saying, what does this actually look like as you sit in your cubicle or as you mm. um, you know, uh, play the, 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 the part you play in whatever uh, work you're doing as a stay-home parent, those sorts of things. But the framework that I've used in the piece is actually one that Tim Keller and Catherine Larry Alsdorf pick up on uh, in Every Good Endeavour. And they identify four ways in which our lives of faith uh, can shape and inform our work. And those four are our faith uh, can change our motivation for work, can change our conception of work, can provide high ethics for us uh, as we um, undertake our, our work in the, uh, in the spaces and settings that we do that. And then finally, uh, our faith can give us a basis for, for reconceiving the very, the very way in which our kind of work is done, bringing a, a Christian imagination to bear uh, on work. It's not an exhaustive list. They haven't intended it to be that. Um, but I've just found um, over the years it's been a good place to start. It helps posture yeah. you in ways that can just listen for what the detail of what Christ's calling you to do in particular settings and situations. No resource, including any events, uh, resources or programs, can give you the detail of what you're supposed to do every moment at work. Yeah. Um, nothing can do that. You, that that's, that's what a relationship with Jesus is all about. But there are certain things that can help posture you in ways that, um, that do that. And I've just found that yeah, really helpful. Mm. Um, now, one thing, because, because I did write, write one of the pieces, um, I really can't host this. And Liv, you've been doing a great job already, but I, <laughs> I sort of formally hand on the hosting baton to you oh. uh, or the microphone. Here we go. <laughs> yes, all yours. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Right. Like picking up a baton and a relay. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Those explanations were so helpful. And I think um, if you do want to read those articles, um, they're a great use of your time. Find them on our website. Um, so, John, you really begin your piece where my article left off. So I mentioned this in the last episode, but it's really worth reiterating here um, that throughout our sin and throughout brokenness and the fall, God's grace and mercy does not cease. <laughs> He's continuously weaving through his love and mercy towards us throughout all the pages of scripture, throughout all of our lives. So Babel is no exception to that. So God actually scatters the people gathered at Shinar, which is an act of mercy to go out and fill the earth and bless it. Um, but we're still left with the thistles and weeds of this life and the, the thistles and weeds of our work. Um, so John, can you you picked up this point in your article. Can you just tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, just as a starting point, I, I'd actually encourage um, our listeners to, to go back to Genesis 11 and go back to the story of Babel. Uh, you would have encountered it, um, a lot of you, when you were quite young. And think about it through the lens of work. This is what you do in your article, Liv. But it's, um, it's not always the way in which the story's read, but it's so fruitful, so helpful for understanding... Um, what human beings have made of our calling. So Babel, if you like, it, it ends in, in a kind of wreckage of human ambition and domination. Um, one way to think about that story is that it's a prototype of a scene that's played out, has been played out, is being played out over and over again in human history. And it points to the way in which work becomes a site, a locus of contestation uh, with the earth, with others, uh, and with God. Um, work becomes uh, this kind of focal point for that contestation. Mm. But I want to say, alongside of this, this, the human memory of our good calling mm. um, to work and keep the garden persists. So we still have this notion that work is a good thing, mm. that it can be yeah. fulfilling that it can be fruitful, that um, it's good to keep at it, that uh, it's good to seek there. And that, that memory in the history of Israel, the memory of 
the human vocation to work and keep uh, creation was um, remembered in the the priesthood of Israel. And actually, the words that are used of, of Adam and Eve, uh, working and keeping, the same Hebrew uh, verbs are used of the priests. They're the ones mm-hmm. who work and keep the place mm-hmm. of God's presence. Um, so the tabernacle where they minister, if you like, is a re-imaging uh, of Eden. And within that, it's a reminder to us of this this profound meaning of human work. So then following on from this theme of the priesthood and mm. the priestly role, mm. we encounter Jesus. Mm. And he seems to embody this, right? The scripture ta- talks about him as being our true high priest, mm-hmm. the one only one who's able to restore us to our original creation mandate mm-hmm. and to restore us back to our work, really. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, Jesus is the the only one who is able to offer a sacrifice uh, for sins, for human sins, and to restore us to relationship uh, with God. He offers himself once and for all, and he is raised from the dead. He lives. Um, And so as the true priest, as the one who is able to work and keep um, in the world, Mm. our vocation is restored in Jesus. Um, So Think of him in comparison with Adam and Eve, um, who grasp at life with God. They grasp at the tree that wasn't given to them to eat from. Mm. In Jesus, he's one who lives a life of unbroken trust in God. Mm. Indeed, um, he says the the food, uh, if you like, the tree that he eats from, Mm. is to do the will of the one who sent him to finish his work. So in Jesus, we see finally a human being whose work is shaped by his commitment to live from God and to life uh, for God's purposes and God's glory. Uh, that's what that's what shapes his the work that he's about. Mm. Mm. And that and that keeps on going. Eh? There's an ongoing uh, kind of transformation that transforms our grasping. Uh, so Christ actually not only sanctifies our work, but he continues to sanctify us through the through our work. I think that's one of the things that, that Keller mm. sort of picks up on in these four points, yeah. mm-hmm. that it shouldn't surprise us. Given how much time we often spend, m- most of us, if we're in paid work, we spend in those arenas. We should. It shouldn't surprise us that it then also becomes an arena in which God wants to go to work on us mm-hmm. and continue to go to work on us and to, to actually take those uh, grasping tendencies that remain and mm-hmm. shape and transform them. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. one of the aspects that comes through. Not to get negative on it, sometimes encouragement, great encouragement comes in our work too. Yes. Uh, but he also uses it to, to continue that sanctifying work in us. May your faith be like a lantern to your soul. May your hope remind your head of what you know. And may love be your companion on the road you May the wind that blows a John, it's really interesting your use of the word work here, referring to Jesus's ministry. Now, we, I think um, for many of us who grew up in the church, who've um, had a lot of Christian teaching throughout their lives, we talk about this period as Jesus's ministry, but you're referring to it as Jesus's work. Can you just explain why you're using that word and, and what it means for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, caveat at the outset, there's more to Jesus. Uh, redemption then the transformation of work redemption concerns the whole cosmos in um, scripture the the new testament is replete with metaphors that are wanting to describe what god is doing in jesus so um, talking about uh, salvation through this lens of work is not the only way of doing it and it won't exhaust all of what christ does but work actually is a recurrent term Jesus uses to speak about his mission. So this is particularly in John's gospel. Uh, and his, his work is the, entails the redemption of our work. Um, it reframes how we understand all good work. So um, let me just unpack this for a moment. Jesus is at work, he says, because my father's at work. This is the language that he's using. Mm. Uh, in fact, I called that section in the article I wrote, um, not the work of Jesus, but Jesus and the work of the Father. He mm-hmm. talks about the Father's work. And then he says, 
actually, this is a work partnership. He's in yeah. partnership with the father. His work is ordered and shaped by the father's priorities, um, which are to restore people to relationship with God, to fulfill God's purposes for creation. Um, and, and this partnership isn't an imposition of God on Jesus. It's a, actually a way of working that's perfectly suited mm. to human life. Mm. Um, and that's why he says that his, his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, there's something uh, life-giving, we like to say at the moment. There's something good and sustaining about working this way in partnership with God. It's not toil. Uh, it's not drudgery. Mm. It's not exploitation. Um, it's an outworking of freedom. Mm. Uh, and we're invited into that also. Mm. I'm reminded of the, just the line where Jesus invites us to take his yoke. Uh, yeah. It, it's almost like I've already taken a yoke with the Father uh-huh. and that made my life go well. If you guys do the same, right. you know, just there's that beautiful passage. If you're uh-huh. weary, if you're heavy laden, yeah. yoke yourself to the way I do things. Right. Like I yoked myself to the way the Father called yes. me to do things, and it will just go the best for you. Yeah. Or the in the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, the Lord's Prayer, if you like, is the prayer of a particular way of working in the world. Yes. We can say. Yes. And in that prayer, there's, um, "Hallowed be your name." There's, "Your kingdom come." There's, "Your will be done." Yeah. Yeah, and this this picture is just so beautiful that you're painting here, John. This it's all kind of flowing out of this um, intimacy between the son and the father, mm-hmm. and the dependence of that relationship. Mm. And it, actually, at one point in the article, you write, um, firstly, the engine room of Jesus's work is his intimacy with the Father through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is a work that is from God and done through and with God. And secondly, the content of this good work reflects God's purposes for creation. It is for God, not only for God's purposes, but for God's glory. So you use this framing of from, through, with, mm-hmm. for. Tell us more about those. Yeah, I, those, those prepositions, from, through, for, are, are so helpful for understanding, uh, firstly, how Jesus works. And then how our working lives are reordered when we follow him. So let me just unpack this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus works from God. That is, um, the work he does is ordered by God's purposes and priorities. Um, so at one point he says, he's speaking of himself, he says, the son only does what he sees the father doing. Mm. Um, Jesus' power and authority to act his um, faithfulness, his effectiveness as a worker, if you like, uh, an outworking of this intimacy with the Father. Um, but this idea of working from God, it's not just about um, applying principles. It's not like Jesus said, oh, uh, these are the principles and values the Father lives by. I'm going to apply those. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a genuine partnership between Jesus and the Father. It's done through the work of the Spirit, who's who's the uh, the bond of love, the the church fathers describe the Spirit, the the living, breathing agreement, if you like, between the Father and the Son. So, one of the things that marks this way of working is freedom in relationship. Jesus is uh, totally secure in his identity. If we glance back at Babel, we identified you identified love. Mm. Hey, at Babel, there's an insecurity. Uh, the people of Babel want to establish a name for themselves, and and all that follows is driven by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jesus uh, is is quite free. He's not using work to tell him who he is. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not. Um, he's not trying to make a name for himself. It's an overflow of this relationship of of unbroken trust in the Father. Um, and then, so the next step. Uh, from, through, now, for. Jesus' work is not about empire building. Uh, It's not about using God's power to realize himself. Um, He's redeeming our role as the creatures who help to bring bear to bear 
God's purposes on creation, um, who offer their lives and work to God in praise. That's what Christ is doing. He's restoring that role. Um, so the point of his work is to to work for God's purposes, to work for God's glory. That's why we see Jesus lifting up the poor and needy, uh, healing and delivering people, opposing evil, sham righteousness. Um, if you like, he's about this family business yeah. from beginning to end. Even when his obedience means he suffers the consequences of humanity's rejection of God. Um, and all of this is, is, is resonant with the fact that human beings are made, we're made to glorify God. That's freedom and life to us. We're made to reflect God's character and will through loving obedience. Um, it's what we see in Jesus' work. He says, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Um, so just to pivot and think about us, when, when I share in Jesus' life, when I, when I turn hmm. and follow him, I'm beginning to share in his way of working. My life is from God. Mm-hmm. My work is from God. It's to be through God in the power of the Spirit. It's for God's purposes. It's for God's glory. It starts. You start to see how this is going to recondition mm. starting points, the method, mm. the mm. evaluation, um, the results of my work. Yeah, I'm sharing in Jesus' relationship of trust in the Father. My identity is secure. Um, I'm now about the Father's business. Uh, I'm looking for his markers of success. I'm reflecting his priorities and so on. So um, when we talk about the redemption of work, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about um, a way of working that's opened up in the life of Jesus through the gift of God's Spirit. It's extended to us. And so uh, one aspect, just one aspect of the good news is you can work. Good work is now possible, yes. as God intended. Mm-hmm. You can awesome. work and keep yes. uh, creation. Yeah, yeah, man, I love that term. Uh, joining almost the family business. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's yeah. such a like simple but helpful reframing of the work that we're doing here. Yeah. You know, we join into the family. We are about the father's house. We're about the father's business, and then that then flows out and impacts a whole host of areas. So it's like from God, through God, with God, and for God. It's it's a beautiful picture and a real, really helpful framing for us, John. Thank you for that. Now, Sam, if we were to capture something of this understanding of the redemption of work, it would actually be so helpful <laughs> with counteracting some of those mixed motivations you cover in the mm. first section of your article. Yeah, if only it was as easy as listing those, eh? As Keller says, our, our faith goes to work on us changing those motivations and, and releasing us from those things that mean we're not um, we're not being enslaved by, by some of those other things. And, uh, you know, another way of um, coming at this would be highlighted in that piece that you did on Babel Live that John's just mentioned where, where that idolatry language just comes up, come let us make a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple of interesting things to note about idolatry. The, the first that is that um, we can think we're putting God first until you start naming some counterfeits, and then you actually go, oh, yeah, there is a bit of that there, or that has crept in yes. uh, without me realizing it. So I think sometimes just naming some things, and, and one of the things Keller does, he names a couple of very obvious ones when we're, we're prone to be motivated by the amount of power or prestige or pay that we get. Um, sometimes we're motivated by w- whether we're being watched or not. Um, Often the second point to make about idolatries is that sometimes it's not that works the idol directly, but it's acting as a, as a sort of a middleman for some other idolatry that is being expressed or exposed mm. uh, by our work or by the way in which we're working. Uh, it's manifesting something else. Something else is manifesting and works the kind of the camouflage uh, for it. And so, again, uh, Keller names a few, but actually someone I've, I've found really helpful is a guy called Tim Chester who wrote a book called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, uh, which is a, a great title. And Absolutely. as a pastor, he's just seen 
certain themes come up time and time again, and they often find expression in our work. So, uh, again, you guys can sort of, uh, you know, uh, nod, nod or shake your heads, although no one will see that, uh, given that this is audio only. You can come in with yeses or noes or, or examples based on, on some of these. But he says, often it's a need to prove ourselves, that there is this kind of brittle sense of identity that is attached to mm-hmm. uh, our achievements at work. And that's, that's one of the things that his, his work is concentrating on people who are overworking uh, specifically, but he says our work is, is really a way in which this is manifesting. We need to prove ourselves. The second is the need to meet everyone else's expectations. I, I don't want to let anyone else down, and so I'll just make sure uh, that I, I work accordingly and my, my work reflects that. As I go through these six, I should say none of these are bad in and of themselves. There is actually a time to take some satisfaction and, and, and a sense of actually I can do that. There is a time to meet some people's expectations, sure. but he says it's when this takes ultimate place right um he says the need to be in control of everything sometimes uh, we're racing around trying to just lock everything down dot every i cross every t and um he says actually you just just won't be able to do this uh, you won't be able to do that this this side of christ's return you'll never have everything uh, sorted out fourthly is the need to uh, feel under under pressure and to feel sort of useful to actually be be needed um Number five is the need to maintain a certain level of lifestyle. And so again, I think these can, these can creep up on you before you, before you know it. There, there can be a, a sort of a, a sneaking up of um, actually, oh, am, I, am I doing this? Because actually there are some other things that I'm now um, I'm obliged to keep paying for or keep mm. going after. Um, and then the last one, he says, that the, the need to live a full and exciting life. And we might come to that a little later where we look to work to be a way in which uh, all of our creative buttons are going to be pressed or all the experiences we ever wanted at work are actually going to be ours to enjoy. I think those things can, can be really problematic. And so, yeah, I think that's right. When we go back to that, you know, that really nice way of framing it through those four, through, with, and, um, sorry, from, through, with, and for, um, then that can help actually to uh, save us from some of these other mixed motivations. Mm, absolutely. And again, um, Donald did such a great job of finding some songs for these this playlist, the Songs to Work To playlist. Have a listen to a few of these lines from Busy Earning by Jungle and note some of the lyrics and the way he frames them. John, we've just looked at the intimacy of Jesus and his father's work from, through, with, and for. Now, I think it's relatively easy for us to make those links for the three years when he was healing and preaching and slowly revealing the fact that he was a long-waiting Messiah, what we've referred to as Jesus's ministry work. But as an almost 30-year-old myself, there's a whole lot of living that happens before that ministry started. Mm. Um, does what you're saying have anything to say to his work prior to the ministry work? Yeah, I mean, Jesus was from a, a farming family in Galilee. Uh, his dad was known as a carpenter. He was known as a carpenter. Um, stretch a point, we could say he was a tradie. Um, he worked with his hands. Um, but we can also assume that, that as part of that, he had to deal with all of the rest of it, limitations of time and money, challenge to do work relationships mm. well, decisions mm. about what to do when. Um, I mean, what you're touching on, Liv, is there is a way of thinking about Jesus' life that majors on his ministry and plays down his working life before that. And, mm. and the Gospels have that focus, right, on those three years of um, ministry following his baptism. Yeah. Um, but within the life of the church, of those who follow him, that that distortion can then um, dictate what counts as worthwhile work among us. So we need to reckon with the fact that it's not that Jesus is an ordinary bloke, just a tradie, and then suddenly he's about this salvation gig. He's, he is God's salvation from the get-go. Mm. 
from before his birth. There's not mm. some mm. prelude then. His life before his baptism is not some prelude to a, a brief but brilliant career as saviour. Mm. Um, his, his work as a day-by-day worker is just as much a part of his walk of unbroken trust in the Father as anything else that follows. Um, that's why the, the early church wasn't particularly impressed by work as a source of meaning and status. Mm. It's just, mm. you go looking for it, you, you won't find it. Mm. Um, even the, the servile jobs, as it were, were part of God's purposes. Mm. It was good work for everyone to do. Mm. And it follows from, from Jesus' life. Mm. Some of these themes, John, dovetail so nicely into um, some of the points that you're touching on in your article, Sam, about how our faith changes our conception of work. Yeah, I mean, that's something, again, Keller picks up on this, that Christians of all, sh- of, of all people, uh, we should have a, a deep appreciation for the, for the dignity uh, of all work. Um, again, Andrew and Jules spelled this out in the first episode so well, just the depth and breadth of, of work that's available to us. Mm-hmm. Um and really, he does make a point of, about um, avoiding any kind of hierarchies in the way that we think about it, avoiding uh, sort of spiritual hierarchies, that there's ministry versus secular work. And I mean, this maps so well onto what John's just been saying about Jesus' own life. But uh, high paid versus low paid jobs uh, of blue collar versus white collar work, even uh, cool versus uncool work. He, <laughs> Kelly gives an example in, in his book. He says, um, you know, young guy he was talking to, I realised that if I stayed in education, I'd be embarrassed when I got to my five-year college reunion, so I'm going to law school now. Yeah. That's just kind of like, oh man, like, <laughs> there'd be reasons to make a change like that for sure, but um, it's a pretty hollow foundation if that's why you literally did it because of what, the look on your face of future people at a reunion. It's yeah. um, hard to build a life of self-emptying service when that's a prime motivator. Mm. Um, I go back to the, the sort of white-collar, blue-collar um, there's been a couple of commentators that have said, um, you know, a, a lot of countries in the West, there's a, there's a bias towards uh, work of the mind versus work of the hands. Totally. That somehow work of the hands can't be intellectually stimulating. And a couple of these authors are saying it actually can be. It really can be. And I've realized as I've chatted about this with various kind of intakes on our fellowship, um, that some of them have, have felt that sort of bias, felt that bias from career counselors, um, sometimes even from parents that, you know, hey, it's uni or else. And um, they're sort of going, oh, I wonder whether actually I'm more suited in, in, in some other area of work. And so I think it's really helpful uh, just to be, um, when we see those sorts of biases, really be challenging them. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And one of the other um, points that you pick up on in that, in your piece around faith changing our conception of work mm. is that it can also protect us from this kind of tyranny of finding the perfect job. Now, as a classic millennial, I've definitely felt that sense of urgency to find the job that's fulfilling, that's serving God's good purposes, that's um, going to be sustainable so I can actually make a living from it. Yeah. Um, how how does Christ's redemption of our work or Christ's redemption of our conception of work change this ty- tyranny for me and for others? Yeah, you'll have heard lines like you know do what you love for a living and you'll never work another day in your life you know <laughs> I've heard that oh that's been true for me <laughs> oh my I've heard that attributed to everyone from I think I said in the article from Confucius to oh. Mark Anthony who's kind of a, a bit of a salsa sensation which is where we should all get our <laughs> theology from Tim Chester makes a really interesting observation where he says it's a relatively recent phenomenon that Christians would join everyone else in seeking uh, an intrinsic sense of fulfillment in their work above all else. He said, historically, Christians were happy enough that their sense of fulfillment came extrinsically. You did your work before the Lord. (laughs) You offered it to him. uh, And and the Lord was happy. And you were happy because he was happy. It didn't also have to press all of your creative buttons and be keeping you uh, feeling as though you weren't working uh, a day in your life. Um, I just can't find it in Scripture. And Christ will sometimes call us into some very dull seasons, potentially, uh, some repetitive seasons, uh, and they may go way longer than we wanted them to, some frustrating seasons, uh, even some uh, seasons of work that, that feel meaningless at times. And I think we need to, to know that up front and to actually have those conversations honestly in community together. I think the church is a gift to us that we we don't deploy often enough in terms of having those conversations and going, no, no, that's, 
That's not a time to solder on to the next job. That's God doing some work in your life right yes. in that moment of, of dullness yeah. or of, of perceived meaninglessness. Yes. I mean, such work like that um, it is, if you put it in conversation in quite an interesting way with Jesus says, look, um, my food, the thing that sustains me mm. is to do the will of the Father, mm. to be about his work. Mm. Um, and I mean, it, it's pointing to the fact for followers of Jesus, this reframes our work so mm. that the the indicator of, of what's meaningful, whatever, isn't necessarily bound up with um, the nitty gritty of what I'm doing. Mm. There's a bigger picture. And, mm. um, you know, think about, what, what's the frame I'm using for my work? It's the story Marva Dawn tells of um, three construction workers. They ask, what are you doing? The first one says, I'm, I'm earning my bread. I'm putting bread on the table. Mm. Second one says, I'm building a wall. And the third says, I'm building a cathedral. They can, they've got this bigger mm. vision of what they're part of. Mm. Um, the basic point is how we frame our work, how we think about it, shapes the goods we seek uh, in our work and the goods we receive actually so for for us again our framework is now the reality that god opens up in and through jesus of nazareth um so just to put some detail around this at the height of his work the height of his ministry he calls himself a diakonos that's a greek word from which we get the english term a deacon which just means household servant he's a servant um, so when God draws work into the life of the incarnate son, when work gets folded into his purposes, this is where he goes. He goes to the household servant. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that all good work forever after needs to be menial and lowly. Mm. Um, and, and we've already identified, right, that work is often a means of, of oppressing others. This is often a side of injustice and scripture's so clear mm. about God's views on that. So I'm not I'm not wanting to let that in by the back door. Mm. But the gospel overturns ancient hierarchies and actually modern hierarchies of work. Um, I just Oliver O'Donovan uh, writes, I love this, um, thinking about what what's what's noble work, what's work th- that should garner my admiration and respect he says as christians understood nobility menial work was a royal road to dignity of the highest order why jesus mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, i've found helpful too is to to make the distinction between work and vocation so um that we'll, we'll sometimes use the words synonymously and if the setting makes it obvious then i, I will use them uh, interchangeably but actually work is a subset of vocation i've got other aspects to my vocational calling yes. that aren't mm-hmm. my my paid work I, i've got a role in a family both the family that is immediate to me and julia and the kids but also i'm a i'm a brother i'm a i'm a son i've got other uh, aspects here i'm a member of a church and things and so uh, sometimes i've found it, it helpful to sort of ask the question hey if 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 work is going through a patch like this maybe, maybe god's asking me to take some of that energy not that to, to remove it from work but actually that i'm needed somewhere else in those in those mm-hmm. ways i'm actually yeah. needed some of my energy is actually required at home yeah. work's gone a bit quiet i'm kind of like oh uh, what's going on there? Am I am I not needed quite the same way? It's actually often I've I've learnt to sort of attune my ear. God, is there some other aspect of church life, community life, home life that needs more of my attention and even sometimes my creativity? Mm-hmm. Um, and many people will find that it's actually not through work that those buttons get pushed. It's it's other areas. They're actually able to find a role in, in church. It's, it's unpaid, but but they get to deploy some of their calling there. Yes, and it's actually quite liberating to know that. Um, sometimes when we're kind of like in those menial tasks uh, the work is still valuable and it's still good to be yeah. chipping away at something just like one of the songs from Donald's playlist um, like we're chipping away little by little little by little by little baby every day I'm chipping away I'm chipping away John, one of the things you touch on in your article is responsibility, which is where I'd really like us to go next. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that. Our work um, that's restored to us in Christ, 
across this uh, uh, most vivid picture of this, um, this particular role we have um, in creation to represent God's purposes uh, in the world, to be part of the family business, if you like. And it's a role that's characterized by such dignity and authority mm. and therefore responsibility. Mm. Um, so there's a high emphasis placed in scripture on the responsibility of work. Um, so, you know, why Why is James in his letter to the church so fierce with the rich? Mm. Um, he is scathing because they're exploiting their workers. They're taking us back to Babel. Mm. Uh, and they're not only doing this, they're doing so in full knowledge of Jesus yes. in, the, in the face of what <laughs> God has done. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the basic point is because of the, this is a high and noble thing uh, to be joining with God's purposes, we're going to be held to account mm. for what we make of the freedom and responsibility of the work we're given to do. This isn't, it's not some kind of trap from God. Mm. It's simply part of the goodness and dignity of our calling. How we work matters and we're held to account for it. Um, by the same token, um, the work we do is not just for my boss, um, but actually I'm doing it before God. So good test of my heart. How am I working when no one's watching? Uh, who am I working for? Actually, Paul writes, you're working for the Lord. Um, and in uh, the latest issue of Common Ground, uh, Sarah Corbin explores that. What does it mean to do uh, our work unto the Lord? Yeah, he actually um, coins a, a brand new word there, which he uses twice, one, once there and uh, once in Colossians and, and once elsewhere, eye service where you literally serve only when someone's eye is on you. You know, yeah. you only do it when you're being watched. Yeah, yeah. And he's kind of mushed together this new word. Great word. To sort of yeah. say, look, that's not how you're to be. He's actually talking to slaves at the time. And, you know, he might know that for some good reasons, probably slaves might have been more prone than, than others to only work when the boss is around or to work their hardest then. But there's a sense in which we're all a bit prone to want to work our hardest when it's public yes. and maybe button off when it's in obscurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the basic point is our faith is supposed to make a difference to how we work. Um, I mean, there's something you've been exploring, Sam, that the ethics, that what difference does this make yeah. to our ethics? Yeah, yeah. Again, um, just going back to Keller, because this is the framework from, from Keller and um, Catherine uh, Leary Aldsdorf, but uh, our faith gives us uh, sort of high ethics for us to, to hold to in the workplace. I think historically, if I think back, and I don't want to make a, an unfair caricature of sort of churches uh, that I grew up in and things, but there was a sense in which... Um, uh, you know, work was a place where you were supposed to stand out either by sort of awkward attempts to evangelize uh, or by being kinder and more honest than your work colleagues. That, that, that was how you stood out and were a difference. But, don't um, steal office supplies. Yeah, don't steal the stationery. <laughs> and what, what uh, kind of painfully dawns on you, as it did for me many times in many different work settings, is what if you're working alongside some quote-unquote heathens who are actually a lot more honest and kind than you are? <laughs> Well, then you're, you're toasted, you're, you're done. Yeah. Like you, you, you haven't got a point of difference at that point. And so a richer or a more robust kind of theology of work reminds us that our efforts are sanctified because of the work of Christ and because we offer them up to God as worship, not because mm. we're doing them more piously or more perfectly or with more purity than anyone else is doing them. Um, and so we'd want to critique a theology of work that just boils it down to not stealing the stationery, and yet we'd also want to affirm and say we shouldn't be stealing the stationery. <laughs> so we'd want to critique a theology of work totally. that is only ethics, but we'd also want to say it should definitely uh, include ethics. Ethics mm. uh, do matter. Um, and so I think you know we could probably think of examples. Yes. Um, I remember uh, talking to a friend of mine who was uh, involved in a uh, managing a cafe, and they just had the cafe fit out. And I said, oh, I know the guy that did the fit out. And he said, that guy's a legend. I thought, oh, yeah, I know he's a good builder. Why is he a legend? He said, well, he quoted us for that job. And he said, everything he quoted in terms of supplies, if they didn't use the supplies, they credited us back exactly the amount of what they didn't use. Right. And he said, that, I've, he said, I've done a bunch of cafe fit outs. That never happens. A quote's a quote. And if they don't use it, that's on them. They get to keep it and then resell it on the next job. Yes. And... Uh, I knew that the guy was a Christian and sort of said, oh, he's a Christian. He said, well, I sort of, I knew it. Now, I'm not saying that all Christian builders are super honest and all ones who aren't, aren't. But I'm like, what, what surprised me about that is what little it took for that guy to stand out. And when so I relayed the story back to him, yeah. he was like, is that all it takes to be a legend these days? <laughs> he's like, I'll take it. So, so people are watching us sometimes. Yes. I, I think we don't, we don't realize how much people are, they're, they're paying attention. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, again, once again, going to bring up Donald's playlist. It's so helpful. It includes a song that um, captures so well this need for us to examine our behaviours honestly and um, and prayerfully. And this is another one from one of my favourite musicians, Josh Garrels. Definitely look him up. He's a great artist. Yeah, wisdom will honor everyone who will learn to listen, to love, and to pray, and discern, and to do the right thing even when it burns, and to live in the light through each treacherous turn. A man is weak, but the spirit yearns to keep to the course from the bow to the stern, and to throw overboard every selfish concern that tries to work for what can be earned sometimes. Now we're getting close to the end of our time together, so I might just ask you both to share what the closing thoughts were to your respective articles. Mm. Um, And I'll start with yours, Sam. Uh, You landed with the fourth and final of Keller's points, that our faith gives us the basis for reconceiving the very way in which our kind of work is done. There's a great line in Stackhouse's Making the Best of It um, book I've already mentioned, and we actually read this this line out um, in, uh, in a previous episode. Uh, where he describes the biblical concept of shalom, a condition in which each individual thing is fully and healthily itself, in which it enjoys peaceful, wholesome, and delightful relations with God, with itself, and with all the rest of the cre- of creation. You sort of read a, a description like that, it's just like a such a warm, awesome, just rich, and just it just covers so much, and you go, wow, that's amazing. And then the title of his book, Making the Best of It. Yeah. We're, we're now in a place where actually sometimes the best we can hope for is to look for little fragments of uh, shalom. And again, that's uh, a, a phrase I think I used in the, in the last episode when we were talking about just living sort of in this time between the times. Mm. Um, and so one of the questions we can ask ourselves, and I think what, what sort of Keller's getting at in this last place, we were, in this last point that he makes, where um, the gospel helps us to reconceive the very way in which our kind of work is done. How might we bring uh, a Christian imagination to bear uh, on our work? What do what do fragments of shalom look like? So I'm just going to read out just a couple of um, uh, sort of examples that I've come across, um, and uh, maybe even just get you guys to sort of respond to respond to them. One one is from architect David Grusel, and he asks, "What does redeemed architecture look like? Does it have Bible verses encoded in the decoration, scrolls of scripture hidden in the mortar joints?" I don't think so. To my way of thinking, redemptive design seeks the good of the city and the, of the people in the city, whether they live or work in the building or not. This means that the building has to be a good neighbour, reinforcing the street and not alienating passers-by. Mm. It should promote human flourishing, whether it's a place of dwelling, work or recreation, and help people to be, in Andy Crouch's phrase, most gloriously themselves. And regardless of its use, it should point to a higher reality, not with encoded Bible verses, but with excellence in design and craft. Mm. I just love that. I just love that he's soaked in not only his profession architecture, but in theology long enough to bring a good neighbour principle to yes. bear on a building. Yeah. You know, And I think we could all point to buildings that we know that, that aren't a good neighbour to buildings around them where someone mm. hasn't carried um, mm. that sort of uh, thing into it where there hasn't been that sort of uh, recognition. Mm-hmm. He mentions uh, Andy Crouch. In, in Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, he gives the example of his wife, Catherine, who is a, a physics professor. And uh, here's what he says about sort of her work and her sort of bringing fragments of shalom into her workplace. In her work as a professor of physics, Catherine can do much to shape the culture of her courses and her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to exciting and disappointing results and can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and fitful procrastination. Mm. By by bringing her children to work with her occasionally, she can create a culture in which uh, family is not an interruption from work and where research and teaching are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting her students into our home, she can show that she values them as persons, not as units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, she has real abil- ability to reshape the world. Mm. You know, he hasn't listed there that she's just defined a new theory. Mm. He's gone for these little bits around her work mm. that are just fragments of, you know, and you might be sitting listening to that going, well, I'm not a physics professor, but... You might be able to play some beautiful music in a place that that needs some or something like that. I just love the things that he's gone after are just quite small. And I mean, the challenge of those examples is you you can't sort of take those, distill them down. Here are the principles, go and apply them. They're an invitation to 
to be apprehended by where we find ourselves, um, creation. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yes. And by the scope of um, our vocation and the place of our work and yeah. that, um, as people who share in this, this work uh, that Christ fulfills, restores, uh, of being almost like um, royal priests of creation who offer creation up to God and praise, who, mm. um, who represent God's will uh, in creation. Now, we do so in a mixed field, you know, mm. to use that, mm. that language that yes. Stackhouse really elaborates. We do that in a way where um, uh, we're living in the tension of the fact that God's kingdom is among us, but it's hidden. Mm. Um, and yet we need to cultivate, uh, to understand our work um, within the, the generous, yeah. exciting, yeah. Uh, fulfilling scope of what Scripture has to say about reality. It's, uh, yeah, mm. it's wonderful. Mm. It is wonderful. Um, now, John, you, you actually close your piece with some comments on rest, which is a really useful <laughs> ending to even this conversation yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it can seem like sort of closing on it with a dying fall on ending on a whimper, <laughs> but um, re- rest, rest and work are related, right? Absolutely. Rest is the correlative of, of, of work. Um, but we can often misunderstand that relation. Often, I think, um, because the, the, the cultural moment, there's a kind of tendency towards a totalizing of work in mm-hmm. Western societies, of mm-hmm. work as a a dominating metaphor for understanding who we are and what we do and so on. Mm. And, and it's tightly tied to time as well, how we think about time. So we often think about rest as the absence of work as a remedial breather. Mm. Um, I'm resting this weekend so I can get up on Monday and do it all over again. Yes. Mm. Um, and actually, when we think of rest in those terms, it's it's a total work that's in the driving seat it's not how things should be actually the pattern that scripture gives us is a pattern which God establishes in his own work of creation God labors mm-hmm. six days rests on the seventh what does he do on that day of rest he looks and he sees mm-hmm. and he looks at what he's done and he sees its meaning mm-hmm. and he names that meaning in his case he sees that it's good. Mm. He rests, he looks, he says, says it's good. And that's a real clue for us. Rest, Sabbath, uh, allows us to stand back from our work and to look at it and to understand what we've made of things. Mm. And um, some of that is to say, oh gosh, look at what I've made of this. Mm. It's actually, it's, it's a time for us to repent of, mm. to say, I've, I haven't been working from God or through God or for God. I need to. I need to realign with God's God's work. Sometimes um, it's simply cause for thanksgiving and praise. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Look mm. at this. Mm. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Mm. So work and rest. It's a good. It's a good thing. Yes. Tim Chester mentioned something called binge resting, where we try to <laughs> kind of binge on it because of just how much we've flogged ourselves. You know. Mm. Um, quite different to that yeah. pattern you've just explained and, and kind of, yeah, work illustrated is, for us. Work, work can be so good, yeah. um, but unless we rest, we won't know what it is we've been doing. Mm. We won't be able to get a handle on and ourselves in that, or work with others, mm. let alone uh, learning this partnership with God, hearing from God. I, I need to work with you. Mm. I need to... Be prompted by your spirit. I need to be corrected by you. I need to be in concert with your people. Um, all of those things that that rest opens up space for that. Mm, absolutely. We've um, one of the things I know you've been thinking about, John, is just a, a whole piece around Sabbath and rest, right? In some ways, mm. as we if we've just touched on this now, I'm like, oh gosh, we could do a three parter <laughs> on that. Totally yes. doing that well. Totally. Yes, mm. yes. And I think in the world of sport as well, like rest is such a um, it's such a key part of the conversation, but I yeah. think it runs the risk of being part of that kind of totalizing work that you just described, like right. rest as a means to perform better. Uh-huh. Um, 
But it also one of the other things that rest does is it reveals our limitations as well. Mm. When I rest, my body slows down and stops and it goes, ah, oh, I was running at a pace, quite literally sometimes, um, that I couldn't sustain or mm. I physically wasn't capable of. And my body is like, no, that's actually not the way you're designed. And you're designed for good purposes, but it's not to always be doing right. and competing and right. working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get that you clarity and that. Absolutely. Sense, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Sam. It's awesome. been a wonderful Great. conversation. It's been yeah. a bit of a role reversal for me, and I've <laughs> enjoyed being in the hosting seat. Oh, thanks, Liz. <laughs> it's been awesome, Liz. This is the end of our three-part series on the good of work to just round out our conversation with a really appropriate song. Um, we've got Porter's Gate Worship Project song, Your Labour Is Not In Vain. The vineyards you plant will bear fruit The fields will sing out and rejoice with the truth For all that is old will at last be made new The vineyards you plant will bear fruit I am I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, for I have called you, called you by name. You've been listening to Venn Presents, a podcast from Venn Foundation. Our aim at Venn is to help people embrace the depths and richness of the Christian tradition for the good of their homes, universities, workplaces, churches and communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We do this work through a variety of programs, events and resources, including Venn Presents and our monthly digital publication Common Ground. If you're interested in Venn's work or want to find further podcast episodes, works of art or articles, including the latest edition of Common Ground, go to ven.org.nz forward slash resources. That's V-E-N-N forward slash resources. Also, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We really appreciate all the feedback we can get. Until next time.